Welcome to Light Church. We're so glad you could join us for this weekly message. We hope this message leaves you feeling inspired and equipped to be all that you were made to be. It's funny, we, um, me and Harley have our good friend Saffron from uh, Nottingham up staying with us and before the gathering she was like ah it's it's snowing uh, like if it if it sticks I'm gonna have to head back early and I was like yo I've I've been here since I was seven years old and the snow has only stuck two times ever and then uh, by the looks of it I think I'm wrong so <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> funny yeah, no, uh, welcome to Life Church. I'm very, very glad to see you this morning. And um, I think every single week, I'm just honored that you would want to be part of this community. Not because I think we're a bad community or anything like that, but it just feels exciting that God is bringing together a group of people that are passionate about what God wants to do in this area. And uh, I'm very, very genuinely very excited. And Vision Sunday last week, um, although it was a long morning, uh, we got to look at some incredible stuff. And the feedback after has been so encouraging. Not because it's been like, oh, good, good talk, but as in it, was a, it resonated with people. It was like, yeah, this feels like what God wants to do here. So that was special. And I do believe that when the church is united around vision, God does some incredible things. And today is just like a, it's like a second week of vision. So we've talked about what God is calling us to. We really feel that the word conviction is what God has placed on our heart for this next year. He's calling us to be a people of conviction, people that have steel convictions, that know who they are, that know what we believe, that are intimate with God. And uh, so that being the sort of lens that we will look through, today is an opportunity for us as a church. Like Holly said, we kind of can get behind what God wants to do in this area. We as individuals can say, we want to sow into this church and into the work that God wants to do here. So it is by no means a pressure thing. It is, it is a, an invitation. Come be part of, God wants to do, of what God wants to do here. Um, but as I was thinking about this, uh, this week leading up to today, I noticed that there often can be a little bit of a difference between who we think we are and who we actually are. I think if we're being honest in our life, much of our lives are lived in that little gap or that tension between who it is we think we are, the, the values that we think we hold, and the reality of who it is we really are. And I think that's why community is really important. That's why the Bible talks a lot about community because in community, you find that we mirror each other. You begin to see yourself in other people. I heard it said once that often the things that you find most irritating or the things you dislike the most in other people are often a reflection of things that you dislike in yourself. I know it's deep, we're early on this morning, but it's one of those things in community we get to kind of like feel out a little bit of who we actually are and we get to like understand ourselves and I actually think this is one of the contributing factors as to why lockdown was so difficult for so many people I don't know about you but for me when I was in lockdown when it was like you were shut in your own house you had a lot of time to think and you had your own company if you are aware of yourself you are confronted with the version of reality that you really are. You were kind of confronted with your true self. And I've spoken to a lot of people and on the most part, people were shocked with what they saw. 
Maybe you saw some habits in yourself or patterns of thinking or behavior that you were like confronted with. Like, I didn't know I was like this. I actually didn't know I had this in me. I didn't know this was the way I was. It definitely happened to me in lockdown. I was like, whoa, I didn't know I was like that. I thought I was something different. And when I had all this time to kind of get caught up in myself, I realized I maybe... Maybe there is a difference between who I think I am and who I actually am. To tell you a little story, I'll let you in on a little bit of my journey. I'm very, very passionate as a person um, to, uh, to see people become all that they've been made to be. I'm very passionate about helping people to kind of like take that step in their life to become the best version of themselves. Might be a, like a, 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 a risky step or a step that requires a little bit of boldness. Like I'll always be that hopeful optimist that will talk about the future and come on, like there's so much within you. And I, always, I have a, a deep desire for people to become all that, that they were made to be. That's who I am. And I would say in my life, if I was to look back and I would say, if someone says, who are you? I would often say, um, in this hypothetical historical conversation, I would often say that I feel like I'm a very loving person because I really love people and I really want them to be all that they've been made to be. And uh, over the last couple of months, God has done a, an interesting work in me where I've actually been confronted with my own ways. Now, I definitely do love people. I have a, a deep love for people. But something that I found that God showed me that kind of reflected back to me is that sometimes in my desire to help people become all that they've been made to be, I often push people against their will to make the decisions that they need to make or that, that they know they want to make, but they're maybe just not in the place to make it. And it often can come across really unloving and maybe even a little bit like heavy handed. Now, if people were to ask me, are you a loving person? I said, I'm a deeply loving person. I really love people. But actually, I think I've been confronted with this element of myself where I was like, hmm, maybe the way I go about things isn't always loving. And to me, I held this like, it was like an identity in a, in, a, in a sense. I was like, I know that I love people. But I, again, I was confronted with this reality that sometimes it comes across as very unloving, maybe even a little bit bullish. Like I push people in things and it doesn't feel good. And, and it's not all like that, but it was just an interesting reality for me to step into this place and God to show me, you love people, but the way you go about it isn't often very loving. I was like, oh, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> so I am sorry if you have felt I have pushed you into things. I am sorry, but at the same time, I'm not because we needed to make these decisions as well. But <laughs> that was just a little justifier in myself. <laughs> but it's, it's funny, isn't it, though? Because often we can have these differences between who we think we are and who we actually are. And again, much of life is lived out in this tension between who we think we are and who we actually are. So when it comes to the idea of generosity and it comes to the idea of finances and stewardship, and it comes to the idea of how we manage what it is we have, be it financially or be it with the gifts that we've got or, or be it the things that God has given us to do in our life, a calling or whatever it might be. But specifically when it comes to like finances and stewardship, it can be something in our life that as a church, we know the Bible talks about generosity. Like you can look in Psalm 112 verse five, it says, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. I mean, there are 
hundreds of verses in the Bible that encourage us as Christians to be generous people. Generous with our time, generous in our relationships, generous with our money, generous with our encouragement, generous with our love, whatever it might be. Generosity is like the overflow of the Christian life. And uh, we as a, a people, we as a church, we're being called to be in a people of conviction. That's what God has asked us to do. If you want to be the church I've made you to be, you need to be a people of conviction. So if we, as, if we as a community right now, if we want to be and do all that God has asked us to do, we are going to have to be people that understand what it is we believe, that know why it is we believe. And if we're being honest, we live in a very, very complicated age. I don't know if you have noticed, but it is very, very complicated out there. There are so many like political ideas flying around, so many like like media headlines and agendas and stories. And it is, it is very, very difficult. It is a crazy age to live in. And often we, uh, are, 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 we frame our lives through the things that we learn from culture. Now we would be ridiculous to believe. Like genuinely, we would be ridiculous as, as people to believe that, that culture has not shaped the way we see the world. Okay, culture has shaped every, every, the way we see everything. And the, again, the Christian life is these spiritual disciplines about reframing the world, not through the culture's eyes, but actually reframing the world through the Bible's eyes or the Bible's eyes to help us see through Jesus' eyes. So we believe that as, as people of conviction, we need to be generous people. And we're talking about a vision offering. I'm not going to spend all my time, all the time today talking about like, give, give, like the Holy Spirit will do what he will do in you. This is not me pushing you to do anything. This is about conviction, about us as a church, knowing what we believe and understanding our approach to when it comes to stuff like finances, stewardship, generosity, all that sort of stuff. So we are going to look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. I'm excited about today. This has been a, a, challenging, a challenging message. I'm excited. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read from 14. If you don't have a Bible, it is all good. I'll read out. It's a little bit longer, um, but stick with me. It's good stuff. So verse 14 says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his own ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Verse 21 says, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold and I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, 
harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here, this is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that I, when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has been given more. Um, for whoever has has will be given more and they will have in abundance whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and thrown and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth interesting passage so this is jesus a little bit of context this is jesus kind of on the back of a string of of talks he's basically telling people about how the end times are going to work People are asking everyone, especially in the context of um, the Jewish culture, they were like obsessed with the way things were going to end. Like, uh, how, how is God going to redeem humanity back to glory again with him? And they were really, really concerned with the future. So Jesus begins to tell, and he often spoke in stories and parables. So this parable is essentially Jesus describing how he is going to come back and he is going to separate those who follow followed God and those who didn't. And um, to kind of like sum it up, every story that Jesus tells can be understood on multiple levels. If you read parables, you will be able to apply on multiple levels of your life. There is wisdom for living. There is wisdom for understanding your relationship with God, wisdom for understanding one another. But the whole like essence of what Jesus is talking about in this passage like the whole point of what he's saying, the lens that we'll look at this through is this, that God is going to hold you accountable for your actions. That's essentially what Jesus is trying to say. He's speaking to the people that are all so worried about like the end, what's going to happen? Like, is God going to do this for us? Is, is it going to look like a war? Is it whatever the story at the time might have been for that person? Jesus is essentially saying, you will be held accountable for the way that you live your life. So we're going to look at the wisdom of this passage, but I want you to keep in mind that framing, that the purpose of the story Jesus was telling was this, God will hold you accountable for what you do in this life. And ultimately, how you live really matters. How you live your life has significant importance in your faith, in your relationship with God, because Jesus speaks about us. That's why we're going to talk about the idea of generosity or finances, because the way we live our lives really matters to God. So as I said, every single one of us lives in this current age. You don't exist 100 years ago. You probably won't exist 200 years from now. Like we are in this age. That means that there are, this culture, this, this cultural age is speaking to us and teaching us and helping us frame things from the culture's perspective. And like I said, we would be ridiculous to believe that we have not, we have not been impacted by that. So what I want to do is I want to have a look at three sort of myths of culture, three myths that culture will use to help us understand money that the Bible actually gives us an alternative for. Does that sound all right? Good. You don't sound convinced, but it's okay. I won't take it personally. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, the first myth I want to address is this, the myth of cash before character. 
the myth of cash before character. So to understand this a little bit, we kind of need to understand our like Western philosophical framework, understand the way that we understand ourselves. You might be aware of this, you might not be aware of this, but this is essentially how we've arrived at where we are today. The belief that we as individuals are the center of our universe, that we exist at the very center of everything. There are various philosophical names for this, but essentially we exist in the middle of our own universe. That is the framework that we exist in right now. And it's this, we require external things. So this is me presenting, this is me presenting a cultural myth. I'm not teaching, this is what we should do. This is what culture will teach us, right? We exist in the center of our universe and we require external things in order for us to feel happy or whole or satisfied. Again, you may be aware of this if you look around, but we exist like little, like a little Pac-Man going around munching on all of these things to help us feel full in ourselves. That is the sort of philosophical framework of the age that we live in. This hyper-individualistic society where these external things allow us to be something in ourselves. It's what you have, not necessarily who you are. So, that's why materialism is such a big thing in this society because you need something that you don't have in order to be someone or something. Or it's like a social status thing or it's even spirituality. Going around and it's like on a little game where you see these little things popping up everywhere. We, we require, this, culture requires these external things for us to be whole, happy and satisfied. So that's the sort of, the age that we live in right now. But this is what the Bible will teach from this passage. This is, this is like, an al like an alternative that Jesus offers us for our way to. So in verse 15, it talks that the master gave three of his servants. He was going away. And this was a common thing in those times to do. Go away and entrust money to your servants for them to invest and to essentially do something with to be profitable. So he leaves with one servant, 10 bags of gold. With one servant, five and with another, uh, no, sorry, five, three, and one. He leaves these servants with different amounts. Now imagine being the servants that had the one or the three bags. Imagine looking and being like, ah, oh, well, like I could do so much more if, if I had the five bags. Like I could do so much more if, if I just had a little bit more. See, the, the servants in this passage, Jesus talks about, they all were given according to their own abilities. Culture will call us to compare what we have with other people. And what does comparison lead to? It leads to us feeling insufficient. And what does it do? It perpetuates that framework that we need something other to make us feel like us, to make us, to allow us to feel whole and right. Comparison just breeds this hypersensitive insufficiency in all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It will breed a, I am not enough, I need whatever it might be. Fill in your blank. So Jesus presents this picture. These three servants all given according to their own ability. Those, those servants, oh, if, only we had the, if only we had the five bags, then we'd be able to please the master. Listen to this for your own life right now. More money will not make you more generous. 
This is, this is part of the framework that culture, if you had more money, then you would be more generous. If you had more, more time, you would be more generous with your time. See, generosity is not about what it is that we give. It is something deeper within us. It is like a heart state. But culture will look at the end result. It will look at the, the thing that we've given, the amount that we've given. And it looks nothing at the inside of us. See, culture will believe that, that what you do and who you are literally flows from what you have. Ah, I, need, I need to feel happy, right? What do I need? Ah, I need to feel whole, right? what do I need? Whereas the Bible and in relationship with Jesus teaches us that who you are flows from this inner state. In Proverbs, everything flows from the heart. So it is actually a heart issue. It is not about this amount or this thing that is that we give. Verse 21, look at this. Jesus demonstrates this. So the, the two, the two um, servants that came back and, and did the right thing, the master said to them, well done, you highly skilled and highly successful servants. He didn't say that. Even though they'd done really well, he actually says to them, well done, you good and faithful servants. And what's interesting about this as well, they both came back with different amounts, yet they were given the same reward. So clearly Jesus is teaching here, it is not about the thing, it's not about the end result, it's not about that, this, this external state which everyone can look at and be like, wow, they are so generous. It is about something deeper because when the master congratulated them or praised them, it was about their character, not necessarily about their actions. It was the place that it flowed from. So this teaches us that generosity has to be more than just what we do, but it actually needs to be far deeper and go and touch who we are. People of conviction. We know who it is we are. We don't just do the right thing. We have to get to a place where our, our hearts are shaped so that we actually want to do the right thing. Because there's a big difference. So the myth of cash before character. What I found interesting as well in verse 16, when the master is heading back, it says this, it says, after a long time. So the master had been away for a long time. You imagine those three servants, they've been given this money. Like it wasn't a huge amount of money. I think like one bag of gold, one commentator said it's like $1,200. So it's not like an extortionate amount of money. But imagine it says that the, the servants were there and the master had been gone for ages the master praised their goodness and their faithfulness because he'd been gone so long and when he came back, they were ready and they were waiting. It didn't fizzle out. It, they didn't start well and it tail off. It was something that was deep in them. There was like an urgency with them. I wonder in our own lives when we look at it, whether it's generosity or whether it's something else that God is calling you or calling us to be, whether we start strong. Yes, I'm all for you, God. I want to do this. And then as the weeks or the months go on, we begin to tail off and we forget that first feeling of what we wanted to do, how we wanted to be, who it is God had asked us to be. Well done, good and faithful servants. Culture will tell you that it's about what you do and what you have, whereas God cares about who you actually are. That is what matters. So the myth of the cash before culture. If you're taking notes, the second one is this, the myth of association over participation. 
This one is an interesting one. This is, this is challenging. So if we want to look at the idea of some moral philosophy for a second, the moral philosophy of our age is this, is that there is no right and there is no true. Okay, so there's no universal right and there's no universal true. This is hugely flawed. We won't go into it for a second because there are so many loopholes, but ultimately this is the, the, postmodern, the postmodern ideal. There is no truth and there is no right. It's all subjective. You are the center of your universe. There is no true, there is no right. So that means that the highest form of good or virtue is kindness. You'll begin to hear this. But now I've said this, you go out and this week you watch, people will talk so much about being a kind person. Why? Because kindness is the highest form of virtue for our culture. What is kindness to our culture? It is tolerance and affirmation of someone else's truth. That, that's, the, that's the myth of our society right now because if kindness is the highest virtue and if kindness is tolerance and affirmation of someone else's truth, then the biggest fear is to offend someone. We're terrified of offending people because if we offend someone, our culture will cancel us and we are seen as not good or virtuous. So that, that's literally the, the way our society is built right now. Kindness equals tolerance and affirmation. Therefore, appearing to do the right thing and doing the right thing in our culture are morally interchangeable. So what this means is this, is if tolerance, if kindness is the highest virtue, kindness is tolerance and affirmation, then appearing to be tolerant or appearing to be kind is morally interchangeable with actually being kind. Appearing to do the right thing in our culture is the same as doing the right thing. That's crazy. This cultural myth can actually infiltrate our faith. You look at it, especially when it comes to charities in society. Big business, big business really likes this one because every big business has some form of like corporate social responsibility. And the interesting thing is it is in some ways more important to appear as though you care about charity than it is to actually care about charity. You ever notice that? Like so many people will shoot for the, the appearance of doing the right thing or the appearance of caring about something or like sometimes in culture you hear the word virtue signaling, signaling or this idea of like saying or doing the right thing but it doesn't really matter if you actually believe it or not. You're just terrified of offending other people. Like I said, this myth that we have in culture that shapes us can actually infiltrate our faith and the way we approach God. Listen to this. If we believe that we are part of a community or a church or a, or a group that holds a certain value, then it actually can in some ways remove our, our personal responsibility from actually needing to hold that value ourselves. I read a study this week about the, the, um, the crazy relationship between uh, the values that a business holds and the values that its employees hold. And it was talking about the fact that if an employee works somewhere for long enough, they begin to actually say that those are their own values, regardless of whether they actually are or not in their own life. So like we begin to take on things of groups that we are part of. And if our culture is, isn't really bothered, if we do the right, if we actually want to do the right thing, our culture is bothered really about appearing, appearing to do the right thing. When it comes to church, we can often feel like, oh yeah, like my church is big on generosity. And that feeling of being part of something that has that value in some ways ticks the box for us as individuals and lets us off the hook from having to do what it is God has asked us to do. This works on so many levels. 
It works on so many levels because you look at it and there's so many times I even started this message with it. There were so many times, oh, I'm a loving person. And when I actually looked at it, I had removed the personal responsibility. The knowledge that I held that value was in for me was enough. But actually, it took me to look at myself and allow God to reflect me back to me and say, you are not as loving as you think you are. The myth of our culture of association over participation will allow us to go through life thinking that we are often doing the right thing or thinking that we are in the right place when actually if we took a long, hard look ourselves, sometimes we are not who we really think we are. Now, I'm not saying this is absolutely hopeless because the Bible offers us something completely different. If culture removes the emphasis off personal responsibility and puts it on appearance, this is what the Bible says. In verse 19 to 26, the master comes back and he does not judge the, the servants as a group. He does not judge the servants based on some trend or, or some different category. He looks at the servants individually and looks at what they do in their own lives or what they have done with their own behavior. What was Jesus talking about in this whole passage? It was, we will be held accountable for how it is we live in our life. Jesus will not count the values of our church. He will, you will stand before Jesus and he will count the values that you held in your life. He will not look at the behavior of this church. He will look at the way you lived your life. This is a, a, an encouragement, not, not a scaremongering thing like God will hold every single thing you've done. In your it is a, hey, we have a responsibility to follow God in the little things that we do in our everyday life because one day we will stand before him and he will play back our lives. What I really like about this as well in verse 16, it says that the two servants that had the the three bags and the five bags, it says they went at once. It was like they had this conviction, this, like, this thing where they knew what it is they had to do because conviction tends to breed intentionality or urgency. It was like they had this mission, they knew what it is they had to do and they got going. And uh, the guy with the, the one bag, it said he went off. The language is all about like leaving the thing he was supposed to do. He went off, dug it, put it into, it, put it into the ground and it's like this stagnant picture. Conviction breeds this urgency. And when we understand what it is we've been given, when we understand our part to play in this whole movement and mission of God, this personal responsibility that each of us have, it will begin to breed a urgency or an intentionality of how we live our lives. I want to encourage you to step out of that framework, that association to generosity, association to holiness, association to your faith is enough. And to actually move into a place where you have a personal conviction about what it is you believe and how it is you are to live your life. That's what this passage is pulling us to personal responsibility. So we have looked at the myth of cash before character, the myth of association over participation. And the final one is this, the myth of the insignificant contribution, the insignificant contribution. Now, I don't think this one is like a philosophy of culture. I don't think it is any sort of deep, complex thing. I think this is just human nature. 
Put it this way, have you ever just had that feeling where you go, how, how can I affect that? How can I make any change to this big thing? How can I even give enough that would make any difference? How could I ever make a, an impact on my community? Or how could my actions actually change this? I don't know, but I've definitely felt that where I've just been like, is what I have to give really of any significance to the overall thing? Anyone ever felt like that about anything in life? Exactly, it's, it's part of humanity. Often we are very overwhelmed with our insignificance and the significance of whatever it is we're doing. So this is exactly how that third servant, the one with one bag, several commentators point out, this is probably one of the reasons that paralyzed him in the first place, that made him kind of like push away that conviction or that urgency to do what it is he'd been asked to do. So verse 24 and 25, he says to the, the master, he says, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. He kind of paints this picture of like this big, mighty man. The language is almost like he's saying that the, the master with this like omnipotent guy, like hugely powerful, completely beyond anything, paints this picture. And the, the servant being given one bag, this insignificant bag of gold, and the guy goes, the master goes off and he's left to do something with it. And he's like, ah, right, this is, this is not really a big deal. And this isn't so much. There's not really much I can do with this anyway. All I'm going to do is focus on not losing what I've been given. So therefore, digs a hole, puts it in the ground. His whole motivation was literally about not losing it. But he was terrified to actually use it. What's interesting about this, like I said earlier, this whole passage, it was not a matter of return. The master was not bothered about the return. He was bothered about the place it came from, bothered about the heart. See, generosity actually does something within you. In, in a way, generosity actually frees you from yourself. It, it gives you this, this ability to step outside of yourself and say, I am not going to be held down or controlled by this. I am going to freely give. Generosity is actually a freedom. It frees you from yourself and it allows God to do something deep within you. Ah, but God doesn't need my money. God, not, God, I don't even have a whole lot of money. God does not need what I have to give. You're right. He does not need the, the, the pennies that you have to give him. But he wants your heart. He does not need your money, but he wants your heart. And one of the ways that he gets your heart is to give of some of the things in our life that we hold on to, these external things that we hold on to for our value these idols that we build in our life that hold us back from him. So no, he does not need your money, but he wants your heart. And one of the ways is to be generous. God is asking for exactly what you have got. We've looked at this. Oh, if only I had more, then I would be generous. This is so insignificant. What you have in your life is all you need. In your hands, it might not be enough. In your hands, it might look insignificant. But it's not about the amount. It's not about the thing. It's about the one that you give it to. The second your finance changes hands, it goes from not enough to significantly enough. 
It is not about you. It is not about the money. It is about aligning your heart to God. So if you're here this morning, you think even your money or even your life is an insignificant contribution to the kingdom of God. I promise you this. The whole character of our God is that the second the insignificant thing changes hands into the hands of the significant one, he does infinite things with them. That is, that's the character of our God. So it is a myth for us to believe as Christians that there is such a thing as insignificant contribution. Can you imagine if the creator of heaven and earth and he wove DNA together and the complexities of, of life and balance and order and all of the craziness, imagine if he needed your money. That'd be a little bit like anticlimactic. God, you are so powerful. He's like, yeah, give me, I need, I, could you just spare that, like, that money? So I can like carry on doing my thing. No, God does not need your money. He is infinitely powerful. The Bible says he owns cattle on a thousand hills. Translation today, he is very, very, very wealthy beyond what we could ever understand. It's not about the money. It is about aligning our hearts to God. It is about aligning something deep within us. It is about shaping something within us, not just appearing to do the right thing, not just even doing the right thing, but allowing the Holy Spirit to shape our actual desires and habitually changing our actual behavior to want to do the right thing. That's what this whole thing is about. So there's no such thing as insignificant contribution because when it falls into the hands of God, He can do amazing things with it. So I want to encourage you today. We're going to come in to close. I'm invite the band up. I want to encourage you to try and take a moment. The band are just going to play over just for a few minutes. And I want to offer you an opportunity just to sit in that space and observe that gap. That gap maybe between who you think you are and maybe who you actually are. Now, for some, that gap may be very, very small and the Holy Spirit might encourage you and speak to you. Or maybe today it actually might be, I've been shaped by our culture and the way I approach God is so skewed and so off. And this is a moment where the Holy Spirit can shape your inner desires, shape your heart. Because church, I promise you this, I'm not saying all this so that you can give money to the church. I'm saying this so that you can align your hearts with God and find the freedom that he has for you. That's what this is all about. I want to encourage you to give into, into this vision. Give into what God wants to do here. But it is not about the money. It is about us as a community being a people of conviction to say, God, I want to live for you and in relationship with you. Would you shape my deepest inner desires? You've been listening to a weekly message from Light Church. If you would like any more information, you can find us online or on social media. Thanks for listening.